People always ask how I balance my family life with 400 shows a year. I'm just doing what I love with the people I love. It's my magic life. I like Wes Isley. I like everything about him. All right, and we're live. We are on the podcast today with Dr. Dorothy O'Neill. This is the second appearance of Dr. Dorothy O'Neill. We met her through her connection uh, when we had a show on Jewel TV. She also had a television show on Jewel TV. Uh, Dr. Dorothy is awesome. I love how these things, she's across the country. I found her from a friend of a friend. We just happen to be on the same thing. And I fall in love with the woman. I listened to your podcast again last night, uh, can I call you Dorothy? Yes, uh, sure. Dorothy. And man, it was, I just fell in love with you all over again. The stories about your mom and your dad and your strength and the resilience and everything. It was just, that was a fun podcast. Thank you. Can't Thank wait you. to do it again. I'm excited to be on again. This is, um, it's wonderful to be able to share information. And I think, you know, podcasts are such a great way to do that. Well, I'm curious because of all the entertainer friends and I have, you know, that I have and everything. Um, how was your pandemic? What was that like for you? So Business my as usual? Uh, no, my pandemic was busier than I'd ever been. So I spent most of my pandemic in the office. I was only out for one week and then I was in for the rest of the time. And some clients who were too worried and felt safer not coming in did Zoom. But many came in, but I had a whole new category of uh, patients, and those were children. So I saw more 12 to 18-year-olds in that period of time when they couldn't go to school than I've ever seen in all my years doing this. And... What were the things, though? Was it just yeah. being with mom and dad too much or just missing their friends or? Life had completely changed. Yeah. Didn't oh, help adjusting. Absolutely. And it was more serious than that. It was uh, loneliness, paranoia, isolation, eating disorders appearing, uh, suicidality, threats, um, transgender shifts. Um, and also just, uh, and cutting, just bad behavior that evolved out of isolation and the, the loneliness. It is, it is difficult to take a 12-year-old who is used to her peer group and is now growing into a peer group away from parenting group, which parents are still important, but peers become very, very important between that period of time and to then isolate them and they're on zoom for schoolwork which most of them either didn't log in or was haphazard and were really really that was a big part of their social life was being on that zoom and so outside of that because there was no physical interaction they would take time to research things online, go join groups, join um, sort of different groups. And if, if I can say some of those groups were deviant groups. So it was, a, it was a tough time and I had my work cut out, that's for sure. Wow. Yeah. See, and you guys, 
Now, do you think your peers on the East Coast had it as bad as you guys did over there? Because the lockdown seemed much worse in Vegas and L.A. I think that the the children in states that did not close truly were able to adjust to some of the other restrictions because they could still go in the classroom and sit with their peers. They had, they had this anomaly that was taking place that they could actually share. I, it, it's true, no one was prepared. However, when you have a peer group and you physically can be with that peer group, you have an opportunity to process. That disappeared when they weren't in the playground or walking the, the, the halls of the school or having time together outside. It wasn't just they weren't in the classroom. They weren't allowed to be in sports. They weren't allowed to be in friends' houses. So it was a really huge disaster when it comes to our children. Wow. So is that slowed down now that things have gotten back to normal? Or are those kids that started those bad habits continuing those bad habits? Or I, I would beg to say many continue because some of these are very deep-rooted. They're, they're sort of a lifestyle change rather than just, you know, I'm going to eat more pizza. It's, it's a very deep, deep-rooted change. And the good thing was I was able to definitely uh, help many of them and help the parents. There was a huge adjustment to really understanding what was really happening and what was really a, a, an environmental issue rather than what was happening with that child. During the pandemic, I was interviewed by um, Epic Times or Epoch, whichever way you call it. And we did a, a interview where they, it was in the beginning of the shutdowns. And that is actually on California Insider, which is their uh, streaming uh, network. And it was great to be able to talk and share what I was seeing, not just from the side of the child, but also from the side of the, the teacher. So as many teachers that didn't go to work, there were many teachers that wanted to go. You know, teachers often go into this profession because it's a calling. You'll, you'll find five-year-olds saying, oh, I want to be a teacher. And many, many kids that grow up with that idea become teachers. And they were missing out too. They were having to try and teach over a Zoom call, which for them, especially the teachers that are so invested in their children, they wanted hands-on. They wanted to see those faces in the room. They wanted to be amongst the affect that was taking place. That's impossible on Zoom. And so the, the sense of loss was multi-layered. It wasn't just the kids. Yeah, that connection. Uh, I'm a big hugger. I missed hugs during that whole thing. Really bad. You know, people people at our church, we go in there and we just hug everybody on our way in and our way out. And it's just, you know, six feet apart. And don't, don't look at me. Keep your mask up. It was just, it was very cold. Um, just it, it that was. loving feeling wasn't there. And Zoom, you're right, Zoom Zoom's better than nothing, mm -hmm. but just a, just a notch better than nothing. Well, I think something like this where we're having a dialogue and it's really a recording, 
recording and Zoom work. But when a child is on a screen with everyone in the class and there is real no physical interaction, it becomes very flat. And after a while, it was very difficult for many students to interact on the Zoom calls. I talk to parents who say that didn't happen because some kids like that that online teaching. And if you're a student that already was in the mode of online classes, which is happening in the university system and the school system, they're going hybrid before the pandemic, it wasn't as much a switch. But for elementary and middle school, that was the biggest loss because those two forms of education really haven't gone on to online learning. In high school, they definitely have hybrid and definitely university. But those age groups were very high development age groups where you needed that peer involvement to learn certain things and to start building those friendships that you evolve into adulthood. My thing is, I I said, I I felt bad for the the seniors and the juniors that, you know, spent their last two years of high school without what they've looked forward to for 12 years, you know? Mm -hmm. They don't have their proms. They don't have their dances. I was into girls heavy. So, you know, just seeing the girls in the classroom is different than being around them and, and, you know, showing them magic tricks and trying to impress them. You you can't do that in a virtual classroom, you know? No, you're you're absolutely right. The the high school experience for the uh, juniors and the seniors was horrific. And also for university, my daughter arrived at UC Davis for her uh, time there and and she had done two years at junior college and then was doing two years at UC Davis and had one month before the shutdown and spent the next two years in her house. All classes were in online. And then during graduation, if her father and I hadn't been vaccinated then we were not allowed to attend her graduation. And so she did not walk because um, for me, I had I had been just because of other reasons, but her father hadn't, which was his choice. And neither of us could be there for the graduation. Wow. So, so it was a rough, it was rough all the way around there. I will tell you, no one came out of this unscathed. No, right. maybe. Yeah. Maybe people making money on masks or vaccines or whatever, maybe laughed all the way to the bank. But the average person like you and me and children and business owners uh, and anyone there, it trickles down. Everyone was affected. And the fear it has left in society is one of the residues of this pandemic. And it's tragic, absolutely tragic. We we at some point have to move on to normality and that is still in flux. Well, in your professional opinion, when do you think that's gonna happen? I mean, are we, did we just create, you know, I don't know, a half a billion people on earth that are germaphobes like Harry Mandel or they're gonna just be like that the rest of their life? because they lived through two years of that craziness or 
are we going to go back to normal, but it'll take five to seven years? I, I think that that the media, I believe that the, the, the people that have voices that people listen to have to make that message because many people are true followers of what they hear. And if they hear they're still not safe or they should be cautious, they're going to be. But right. if, but if one of the things I say, I say to many people that you, before this, you were around people that had tuberculosis, you were around people that had SARS, you were around people that had the common cold, you were around people that had the, the flu, and you lived your life. And you didn't go day by day fearing whether you were going to catch something. People died during the regular flu season, the year before and the year before and the year before. And I will never underestimate the damage this pandemic has done to the ability for people to function. And I respect the fear that people have. I just believe that we as a nation and a world have to start allowing some sense of balance so that people can stop living in fear. And it, it's, it's very difficult. You, you, you are not alone in this world. We are, a, we are a, a family and everyone has to sort of respect each other's wishes in that way. And we do need the message to be one of, the, of, of trust in the fact that we are in a better place. And if that's not out there, then people aren't going to feel safe. It's just a weird vibe when you walk around, everybody has masks on. And, you know, like I said, I'm a hugger. Maybe it's the Italian thing. Maybe it's just, it's just how I show my love. I'd rather hug you than shake your hand. And yeah, it's just, it's I don't dehumanizing. You're missing part of that human experience for me. It was just, yeah. It, it really is. It's, it's not even a, a, um, a, a feeling that you have just individually. It's a universal feeling. We are a tactile, per, you know, as humans, we're tactile. Not everyone is. Some people learn to be more affectionate than others. Definitely culturally, that makes a big difference. And I think that we have been put in a state of listening outside of what we really believe and see. And until that changes, we, we, we've lost some individuality. That's what I'd like to say. And, and when we get that individuality back and we look at the big picture, maybe we will see less of that. Um, it's so funny because I, I, I wrote to someone this morning a, a little uh, message and I said, people were traumatized when they were around people without masks. And now I'm traumatized around people with masks. And it was just, you know, it was just a little joke that I was making, but it is hard to let go of the fear of the past when you're still walking around and you see so many people with masks on. And again, we have to respect everybody's wishes. If they feel that's their need, then that is what that is. We, we have, no right to say you shouldn't or you should. And I think that's that's an individual uh, choice and could be helped by society normalizing the fear 
And until that happens, people aren't going to feel safe. I'm making a note here. Hold on. Faces in therapy. Um, remind me of that, Natalie. Jerry Seinfeld had a joke in one of his things that, you know, you go to the doctor's office and you sit there and you just look around the doctor's office. And you're like, I wonder what that dude's got. You know, and you start diagnosing the people next to you. And it's funny because everybody's done that. You've always looked around the room. You know, I wonder if that person's sick. I wonder, you know, I wonder what that person's got. But this pandemic turned the whole world on that, not just inside the doctor's office. It was at Walmart, at the grocery store, at the movie theater, walking down the street. You know, everybody yeah, potentially had to have something. allergies and had to sneeze. Right. I mean, anytime I cleared my throat, I, <clears throat> you just you, you're terrified to do it. If I had to clear my throat on stage. Right. God forbid. I mean, everybody thinks that I'm bringing in this disease to everyone. Oh, it, it is. It is impossible to sneeze today or to cough. I was in I was in um, Trader Joe's right after the mask restriction had been dropped. And I was standing in line and a man was standing in front of me, a tall, very tall man with a basket. And I'm only five foot. So he towered over me by at least a foot. And I was standing there and minding my own business. And he turned to me and he said, move away. And I looked at him and I'm like, I just say, excuse me. And he said, move away. And I'm standing there. I was sort of speechless. And so he turned around and he threw his basket at me. And it was Good full God. of groceries. <laughs> so, so I'm standing there and people are looking and just couldn't understand. So they, they were at a loss. I mean, it was so unprovoked, but provoked provoked by the fact we had a mask mandate that had been dropped, provoked by his own fear. And the, the, the manager came up and was standing there and he was screaming, saying she's not got, she doesn't have a mask on, she's not wearing a mask. And the manager saying that is her choice. We have a no mask mandate. You can wear one or not wear one. And he was screaming, saying, I'm never coming back here. And the manager saying, well, that's your choice. But I apologize, you know, if you're uncomfortable. It was horrific. It was it was horrific. And that was most probably my second encounter with someone attacking me for not wearing a mask after the mask mandate was dropped. And so wow. that, that comes from that sheer fear that someone has and... We have to have empathy for that because although it was shocking and for me it was pretty um, un, unprovoked, it is a sign of our times. Well, one more thing and we'll get out of this whole pandemic thing. We've did it to death. Um, faces in therapy. So that's what my note was. In magic, you, you want to see the magician's face and you want to see the audience reaction because sometimes it's over the top and they're running away, but other times it's just stunned silence, but they have a smile on their face or their jaws ajar. You don't see that necessarily in their eyes. So what's it like when you're talking to a patient or a kid and they are masked up and you, you just meet, miss those micro, so micro I, emotions I, in their face? I didn't see... I only most probably saw one with a mask in my room because number one, my room was very, very safe in the way that I'm more, you know, I was tested or I, I definitely had hygiene 
taking place in the room. And so that was a good thing. I definitely was able to have them remove their masks for the time they were doing therapy. And, and when you're sitting in a therapy room, you're sitting on a couch and the therapist is sitting on a chair far enough away. So that's a normal distance for me, you know, a six foot distance, maybe maybe four or five, but I'm not on top of my patients at any time, pandemic or no pandemic. And so I, I think there was sort of a, 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 a safety there and they felt comfortable with it because it is very hard to do therapy with a mask on. It really right. is. And just like you're being, you're addressing your field, I think in many fields, especially psychotherapy, if you cannot see that that twitch or that movement or that that feeling that is very facial, then you can't read what is really happening. And um, <clears throat> but a lot of people did therapy on Zoom, and um, and I did some. I do believe there's something missing. A therapy on Zoom is becoming much more common, even outside of the pandemic. But I think that there's something about that interaction in the room between two people that is very important to your therapeutic journey. All right. So switching gears, we talked about your your first book that came out. What was the book we talked about in podcast number one? Do you remember the name of that one? It was The Rules of Engagement. That's right, because that's the name of your television show. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And that was Learning from Nine Couples Who Made Marriage Work. That was my first book. And my second book is Soul to Soul, as in S-O-U-L to S-O-L-E, um, Co-Parenting with a Difference in the New Family. And it's, it's helpful ways of getting through the divorce to a happier co-parenting. So that was my second book. Did you write it because you saw an uptick in divorces through the pandemic with people having to spend more time together? <laughs> I actually wrote it because I have co-parented for most probably 22 years with my former spouse. And we had such a good experience and also learned ways to co-parent using tools that helped the family that wasn't about me or about him. And during our years of elementary and, and, and middle school and high school, we would be constantly talked to by parents that would come up and say, oh my gosh, we cannot believe that you two are divorced. We cannot believe that you are co-parenting like this. And it was a constant um, statement by so many that were so impressed with the way that we co-parented that I felt that it was beneficial to actually share some of those decisions that we made. And actually in my, my, um, my doctorate program, I actually started a research on co-parenting successfully. So it was sort of, it led in from research then to actual facts of um, practice. So when I hear of divorced couples that are getting along, the poster child for that was Bruce Willis and Dick. But it seemed like they got along too well. And it's like, well, if you get along that well, why couldn't you guys just stay married? 
it's it's one of those fine lines where you want to get along, you want to get along for the kids. I understand all that, but it seemed like they were at each other's birthday parties and here, there, and everywhere, and it was like they they got along great. They're in pictures hugging each other and smiling, and and they're both dating and married. That's the that's the best case scenario. That's what you want, but in society, it seems so weird. So that is why I wrote the book because we have a new era of divorce. Divorce is very easy now. It moves very, very swiftly. You have in California, no fault divorce. Some divorces are absolutely necessary when there's abuse, when there is um, any form of, of um, Almost, um, we don't just talk about abuse, but any form of breakdown that is irreconcilable, there is a divorce. The divorce, like the one you're talking about with the two people in the media, their divorce was one where they were able to co-parent. And one of the questions you asked a few minutes ago was, if you can get on that well, then why are you not married? You have to understand the reason divorce happens, it doesn't happen because you can't get along. It happens because you have irreconcilable differences. And if you have those irreconcilable differences and you need to separate, then that separation is because of that. You are still parents. These children that you brought into this world still belong to both of you. And the worst thing you can do is to forget that because it is possible to be friends. It is possible to have an amicable relationship because you are still parents. Even if you are not married, you are always a family because that's what it exists as. You have two parents and children, whether there's a document that says you're married or a document that says you're divorced, there's still that unit. and. What happens in today's divorce is you're supposed to hate each other. And, and I do believe in the beginning, if one person files and it's not a, a joint decision, there is that feeling of hurt that goes so deep. You know, anger is hurt. It isn't anything but the fact you're hurt. And divorce, if not worked through in a healthy way, feeds that and allows that to fester for the rest of the time that you are a parent. You can choose to get through the her as it happens. And it's not easy. No one says it's easy, especially when the legal system is involved and the legal system wants you to um, be at each other's throats to keep this thing going at times. And that's not all lawyers. That's some that you end up with more hatred at the end than you started with. And it takes years to be able to work through that. But if there are children involved, you have a responsibility first to those children. And so my book really covers the healing process, the understanding, and then the process of being able to co-parent successfully. Do you think most people come around eventually to being decent, normal people to each other? Or is there? 
I seventy percent are just hateful the rest of their lives with each other, even with know, kids involved. I think in I think if there's pathology, if a if one one person has a pathology, then often it is impossible to co-parent successfully. If a parent, if two parents are angry and they can grow to understand that they have a responsibility, yes, many parents can work towards an amicable friendship to co-parent, but there are so many facets that get in the way one is when people enter a new relationship and there is not an understanding that there are children that come first, then that is one of the, the areas that create a monster. Yeah, I mean, mommy's new boyfriend's doing this and doing that. And yeah, it's just, it's got to be tough. It's got to be. Yes, and if you think about any relationship, think about when you dated your wife. You had to court her. You had to be available. You had to go out and do things. It was a priority. And in that priority, you had work, your home, and then you had this woman or, or she had you that you had to invest in. When you are a parent, as you know, also, there's a huge investment. So here we have someone who is maybe going out with someone who maybe doesn't have children, has no idea what it's like to be that parent figure. And once that relationship, which is understandable if they've entered into it, and now that relationship and parenting has to coexist, one of them suffers. And that's why it's important to understand the roles before you go into a relationship with someone else. And some of those parents, you know, the dad will say, you know, you go to mom's house, you're the head of the household over there. I need you to take care of everything for me. I need you to check in. I need you to tell, tell me what's going on. And you're the head of the household now. So that's, that's, that's pressure on the kid. So, so we call that parentification when a child is forced to leave its role as a child and either be a go-between or to be the person who the parent uh, tells everything to because they're angry at the other parent or sad or the child itself loses the role of just being a child and the selfishness that children have to have it now has to take on roles of maybe taking care of things in the house that weren't there before that really aren't their roles so it's it's very important to try and figure out within yourself the role of a parent a single parent so that you know the boundaries that you have to set in place for yourself. Because of course, during divorce, if you are the person who's been served, your pain is astronomical in that way. And you're dealing with so much hurt, you've got to be able to contain it so it doesn't flood into the life of a child. And again, these things aren't just done because somebody wants to do them they 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 just evolve and sometimes not looking at the big picture affects the big picture because you're not really thinking outside of your own pain at that moment so it's important to find out what parentification really is understand it so that you don't do it 
that's that's one of the the big issues for children they just want to be a child they don't want to keep a secret or to be the go between on someone who hasn't paid their child support to tell the parent you know mum or dad says you haven't paid that isn't their role their role uh, is to be a child yeah that that yeah send them send them packing with a with a bill mm-hmm. um so what about do you i don't know if you have a chapter in your book or you go over it what about like parents buying love when you co-parent and the kid's birthday comes up do you guys still chip in 50 50 to get that big present or dad buys him a four-wheeler and mom gets him a, a video game that who's the kid gonna like more that doesn't seem fair that doesn't seem cool so, so i think if if you can co-parent which is what we're striving for we first of all it has to start in the very beginning we have to allow for the healing to take place we have to allow for the legal system to not be so aggressive and so um, demonstrative in its expectation. When I when I got divorced, my former husband's attorney was so aggressive in the way that he wanted us to be fighting. He wanted us to hate each other. And I said to my husband once, I said, "You have you have started a war. Your attorney." by sending me the kind of things he's sending me, is sending me into such a rage. And we have to still co-parent. And so what happened was, by talk, he, he had to authorize those things being sent. Believe you me, an attorney just can't send someone something without the approval. But when you're in, when you're trusting your attorney to do the right thing, then if they tell you this is the right thing, you're going to go with it. Well, this is the way it's done. This is the form. This is the form that I send out to all my customers. So trust me, this is the way it's done. Okay. Right. Right. And so that, that was one of the one things that happened for us is that, and, and I'll share this with you. My former husband's attorney told him to offer me um, this tiny amount of money for child support. It was, it was, ridiculous it he knew that that would never be something that would be agreed upon however I got that and what did that say about my value the children's value after all these years of marriage it set in motion absolute anger and so we had that conversation I was so angry and he said to me my my former husband said you know, I'm so sorry, that's not what I wanted. I said, but you signed it, you allowed it. And he said, no, no, that's not what I want. So you see, that was that was a situation that the two of us weren't discussing. It was the legal system. So I really encourage couples, if they can, to use mediation, to go to an attorney who will look at both of your sides rather than have two you know, uh, uh, warring attorneys. And you can do that if it is possible. It isn't always possible. I believe it most probably would have been possible for us, but we didn't even know of that kind of a situation in the legal field at the time. I have a chapter in my book where I talk about um, that kind of legal 
involvement. And again, it can't be for everyone because some, some relationships when they break up are so contentious, you can't be in the same room. So it works for some, it won't work for others. But if you can get through that, you can at least come to an amicable understanding at the end without it, without it diminishing all your savings. I've just heard so many horrible divorce stories and the, and the, the lawyers just dragging it out because they get paid by the hour and they get the more money they get. And they'll also get, you know, so the mom gets a million dollars or whatever, but the lawyers get, you know, 70% of that because the, the divorce dragged out for three years. So there uh, are, there are good attorneys and there are very, um, that's the honest. ones you hear about, right? You hear about the bad ones. You do. Cause there, there are, they, there are attorneys that want the best for the children, want the best for the couple. And there is that part that you are talking about where there are divorces where the attorneys do continue the process. I have, <clears throat> excuse me, a patient right now where that is happening. It's every time he turns around, there's something else from her attorney that is so overwhelmingly unnecessary, but he has to fulfill it because that's the requirement. So the bill is just going up, up, up and up and there's no stopping it. However, thankfully, there are attorneys that have the the client and the, the family's interest at heart and we still have those in the field. So that's good. But I think if you are able, then it is very good, as I said previously, to have a mediator, an attorney that works for both of you because at least you cut the fees down and you're in the same room together and you can deal with those things with somebody who is mediating. So that's a so, good thing. So what if you just have, and I'm throwing women under the bus here because I'm a guy talking from my point of view. What if you have, and, and that person I was talking about, the woman was the one just dragging it on and on and on. What, is there a law that prevents it from dragging out or it's just, it can drag out as long as she wants it to, because it looks like everybody could do that if they're hurt and the guy cheats on her or he gives her the, the, the paperwork out of the blue and she's hurt and she just wants to drag him through the mud and make it as painful on him as it was on her. Well, Is there a law that prevents it from, okay, well, here's another paperwork. Yeah, I know it's silly. I know it's foolish, but you know, now your lawyer has to read through it and respond. And that's another $400. And then next week, there's another paperwork. Right. So, so the, the issue is we can have divorces that are um, difficult both ways. We can have the same situation for a, a father as much as a mother. So it, right. it, it right. is, it is predominantly women do struggle um, with divorce financially. That is a statistic. However, it does go both ways. There are men who also, have the same issue the the court system the, the the court system is set up to be as as supposedly as fair as it can so it has to take into account what either attorney is asking for so when something is asked for and it becomes um just a ploy the other attorney can go to court to bring it in front of the judge so so there the the balance isn't that it's illegal it's a it's a legal battle so each attorney has to fight for 
the, 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 the stay of that kind of behavior from the other attorney. And again, it goes back to court. The judges do, do hear these things and they do, they will look at it and see if it's erroneous and, and judge on it. So it's not just open-ended, but what we want really is never to go there in the beginning, to try and get couples to work together in the divorce process with someone who can be fair to both of them. That would be the ultimate goal. And definitely financially, that would be a good goal. But once the dust has settled, after the divorce is finalized and there's some time between the end of the divorce and co-parenting, that is when the work needs to be done to really understand that a, the child really still has two parents for the rest of their life. And one thing you said earlier about the present giving, I encourage, I encourage parents to be able to navigate birthdays and Christmases together, that they can share those gifts rather than it be gifts at one house and gifts at another house because children, children really do need their parents forever. It's not just while you're married. They're always going to need you. And one of the things that we did in our divorce, um, my former husband and I, we would never have a gift that wasn't shared. We would, I would purchase every gift because I was able to know what they needed. I would give Ron the bills and then he would split it with me. And again, we would have a sort of agreement how much we would spend. And if I went over, I would say to him, you know, this was more money and they wanted this. And then we would agree that that was okay. The other thing we had, which was very beneficial, was we had the same rules. So in my house and his house, we had the same rules. The children never came to me and said, dad said, no, can I do this? Or they would say, mom said, no, can I do it? They knew if I said no, it was no, and it was universal. And if he said no, it was no. Coming to me and saying, dad said no, would get them nowhere. It would not be, well, let's talk about it, or I'll figure out how I can get around it. If dad said no, and they wanted me to speak to him, why he said no, I would. And then he would say, he'd give me a, a viable reason. And that would be it. So it's important to be able to look at yourself when you, you're divorced as the subsystem, as the parental subsystem, and never come to the level of not being that. Because whether you're divorced or not, you are the parent and you must always have the parent role. And I think that many couples divide on that and they lose sight of that. And that makes it very difficult. So how would you tell parents who are planning to get a divorce to start off? Would you tell them to sit down and have a talk with their kids about it, frankly? Well, or, I mean, how would you advise them to just to start out to navigate the very beginning? I mean, because a lot of times there is a lot of anger. So how... Step number one, buy the book. Yeah, that that was going to be my suggestion. <laughs> buy the book, or if you if you know someone who's getting divorced or thinking about it, buy the book for them. It's very very inexpensive. 
I have a man right now who is getting divorced. Um, it's a very difficult divorce, but he bought the book and he actually called me and said, I just want you to know the book has changed how I'm looking at my divorce. It's changed how I feel and it's changed how I see my children. And that was very, very powerful. That was Dude, if you just influence one family, it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I have I definitely have had good feedback because it's a very honest book. It doesn't it there are lots of books out there to tell you how to behave in a divorce. <clears throat> there are books that give you rules and tell you this is what you should do. My book doesn't do that. My book actually walks you through from the very pain of the beginning from the standpoint of someone who's been there with the rules and the information to make it a good, not only a good divorce, but a good life for your children. And the, the, the bottom line is your children will take whatever you do for them in this divorce into their adulthood. And if you want dysfunctional children when they grow up, then give them a dysfunctional divorce because children learn from what they see and how they experience. And I cannot tell you how much it makes me want to cry when I have kids in my room who are now 18 and 19 and they have been through years of this contentious behavior between their parents and they're so wounded. And I then have to work at bringing them around to be able to learn to love their parents differently, to understand what they came through is not about them. And that's a very tough journey. It really is. So if we can start it early and allowing them to know that they are loved, <clears throat> excuse me, by both parents and that both parents are there for them, we will start a better divorce proceeding. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you had a you had a title heading of one of your books or a chapter, it said universal pain. Mm -hmm. When you when you say universal pain, are you talking about not only the uh, the close knit family that's dealing with the pain, but everybody around them? Is that the universal or is it just that one house exploding? No, because if you think about it, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll just get some water. You're good. While she's getting water, guys, you got to go check out the first podcast I did with Dr. Dorothy O'Neill. She is awesome. Like I said, she talked about her mom and her dad and um, the stuff that she's been through. She talked about her ex-husband, Ron, and the divorce. And um, I fell in love with her then. I, if you haven't heard that podcast, go check it out. There's a lot of cool stuff in there, too. I'm refraining, repeating myself on some of these questions I'm asking her because she covered it in the first podcast. So the universal pain, if you think about it, everybody suffers, everyone. If you have a situation where you have a divorce where it's grandma's birthday, but you hate your spouse so much, your, your former spouse, and grandma's birthday is on your day but it's his mother 
and it's your day, you're not going to give up that day. It's yours. So if you think about that, who, who suffers? You don't suffer. That child suffers not being with its grandma on her birthday. The grandma suffers because she doesn't get to see her grandchild on her birthday. That's what we talk about universal pain. It spreads all the way out. If you have the opportunity to look at others, not just yourself, after, again, I cannot stress enough, you are going to be in pain. You cannot expect to get divorced and not be in pain unless you both absolutely want this divorce. It's amicable. You've agreed to it. Maybe that's what happened with um, <clears throat> the, the couple you were talking about from the, 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 me, the, the, the actors, whatever their names were. Right. They may have already decided our marriage is over. We don't have a marriage. It's okay for us to separate and do what we need to do. And they could do that. But but most people come out of a divorce with pain. They 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 cry at night, they they scream, they 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 want to to change it, and it can't be changed. But you have to be able to grieve the loss of something that you went into. No one gets married with the understanding they're going to get divorced. So the loss of that dream, the loss of that unit that you had when it was good is a, is a loss. It isn't something to be taken lightly. And so you have to be able to grieve that loss, just like you would grieve the death of someone. And when you come out on the other side, the first thing on your mind should be, I'm a parent first, and I need to make this work. And that's why I cover so many areas in my book. I cover not just parentification, I cover the pain that you go through. I actually have one chapter, I think it says, this is the beginning and the end. And so it is both. And you have to be able to accept that, that it isn't about just living in divorce. It's about experiencing it and making it the best you can. I think well, many, many people don't feel that. They live the, the, the pain every every day. And with the universal pain, I mean, I keep bringing it back to me, of course, obviously. But <laughs> but the, the people making you choose sides in the divorce, you know, you're friends of the couple. And then when they get divorced, you know, I get them in the divorce or you're not allowed to talk to her anymore. If you talk to her, that's going to hurt his feelings. That's a that's a hard thing to deal with too. Do you cover anything like that in the book? Like what do what do your friends do? Do you, do you have to talk to them and say, "Look, I love both of you. Both of you are welcome in my house." How does that work? So, if you have been able to come to a a place of reconciliation in divorce, then that your friends will see that. Your friends will either be surprised um in a way that is like, "Wow, you're doing a great job." Um, they will be pleased because they don't have to pick. So you will know who your good friends are. You really will. And something you said earlier, I think when when you were talking about co-parenting and the couple that the couple, the actor actor and mm -hmm. actresses that you were talking about, and that it was weird. That's the mentality we have to change. We have to change the idea 
that as soon as you get divorced, you're no longer a family. You see, you're not an intimate couple. You no longer have that love for each other that you had when you said, I do. But you still have a love for each other because you are both parents of the same children. And that has to evolve into that idea that I have that it's a new family. It is a very difficult concept. I will tell you that people have a very hard time, but having done it, I know it can, you can do it. And having people see it is amazing. For people, for my children's friends to say to them, oh my gosh, your parents are amazing. My, I wish my parents would do that. My dad can't be in the same room as my mother. Or it's so unbelievable that we can come over to your house and we can watch your mom and dad laugh together and, and sit and eat a meal together. Do you know what that says to that child? It's so much. It and doesn't that it can say be done. to them, sorry? And that it can be done. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And my children wouldn't want us to be married. They know that we are so different. We are so different. And they, they absolutely say sometimes when we're together, wow, mom and dad, it's amazing. We, we cannot imagine how you ever got married. You're so different in so many ways. But the common core that we have once we made that decision, whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision, is the fact we have two beautiful girls and they deserve two parents at all times. They won't have to worry about who's going to sit where at their weddings. They're not going to have to worry about who can come to what function. There is no decision making because they will always be our children and we will always be their parents. That is so awesome. That's, that's beautiful. That, I think the podcast over. I think mm -hmm. that's a great way to end it. Mm -hmm. Hey, where can everybody get your book at, Dorothy? They can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. They can get it on all of the online sites that you can buy books. And I do encourage people, and it's not to sell books, because if you write a book for sales, then you are barking up a, the wrong tree. You have to write a book to help at least one person. And I would say my book has helped quite a few so far, and hopefully it will help more. If you know someone who's in divorce and struggling, then buy it for them. It's a very, as I said, it's very inexpensive, but it will change many lives because of it. So hopefully people will listen to this podcast and be willing to buy Soul to Soul, Co-Parenting with a Difference in the New Family is the name of the book. And Dorothy, are you on Facebook, Instagram, any of that stuff? Um, I am. I am. I actually am setting up new Facebook and new Instagram right now, so it won't be accessible. My, my Instagram actually is private, but okay. people can ask to join and I can review who they are. So, um, and, and spell your website for me, because I know there's a hyphen in there somewhere yes. that you didn't so, mention last time. So it's O'Neill Psychology. At gmail.com. That's your email address. Actually, actually, let me let me give you the I gave you my um, email address. So my website is 
www.oneill, that's O-N-E-I-L-L, and then a dash, which is in the middle, psychology, P-S-Y-C-H-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. Awesome. And it was lovely to talk to you again, and I look forward to the next time we have a podcast. You know what? Next year, I'm going to bug you again, because uh, at the end of episode one, you teased about coming back on and talking about PTSD. Oh, so, I would uh, like to do that. We still got to do it. We got to get it done. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Uh, hey, thank me. you so much. You're awesome. Guys, Bye-bye. check out WesIsley.com for t-shirts and hats and playing cards, magic, and more. And the only thing left to say is, see, see you next week. week. Check us out online at wesisley.com and patreon.com forward slash Wes underscore Isley for behind the scenes videos, blooper videos, never before seen footage, discounts on merchandise, magic trick tutorials, and more. That's Wes Isley spelled W-E-S-I-S-E-L-I.